Lord, we thank you for uh, another day and another Lord's Day that we can uh, serve you and, and today we can rest and we can uh, worship together. We thank you for the blessings and, that you give us in this way and we ask again that you would be with us here today, strengthening us, enabling us for, for all that we do and that you would extend your kingdom we might know you and your word, and and uh, uh, just that you would be honored, and and uh, that you would bless us. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> All right, um, we have been talking here about some of the different genres in the scriptures and some of the aspects of each genre that we need to keep in mind so that uh, we can interpret it uh, well. Uh, Each genre is slightly different. Some principles will carry over from one genre to the other, uh, but there are some things to keep in mind. So we started with narrative, and uh, one of the key things we see in narrative is the repetition and uh, looking for a key verse, and those things uh, can help direct us to the main point of the section. Um, we started last time with the next genre that I'm covering anyway, is uh, epistle. And so this, of course, is referring to a letter, the letters of the New Testament. We have Paul's epistles, and we have what we call the general epistles. And, and these letters, of course, uh, were written to individuals, to churches, and even generally Uh, to be sent around to different churches. And one of the things that I emphasized last time is that when we're... um, When we write a letter today, we tend to do it digitally and not on paper. And so because of that, we tend to, um, you might say, think as we go along. And uh, so we can backspace or delete or cut and paste and so forth. And of course... Uh, before this ability, which wasn't that many years ago, um, you had to think very carefully before you wrote. And that was especially true here in the first century, where you, you just couldn't go out and get paper anytime you wanted. And so the time and effort it took to get something to write with and write on forced them to be extra careful when they wrote a letter. Uh, more so than you might say since... The printing press was made, and again, especially in the last uh, 30 to 50 years in, in particular. So because of that, um, the, the letters are, are extremely detailed, and we, we're going to see uh, them written very carefully. Now, we can do that today, and <clears throat> we just tend not to do it as much as they did. And so we're going to see introductions and conclusions and structure and a flow of thought and so forth. And occasionally Paul will get off on a tangent and so on. But, but most of it is laid out very, very carefully. And so when we read uh, a, an epistle, look for these things. Now this point is true for any genre. Um, But since we see these as letters, sometimes we say, okay, well, it's a personal letter, and maybe the the standard of writing is less or something to that effect. Um, That's not true. And in in fact, every word means something, which is true of every part of Scripture. 
Um, so as you're reading through a letter, look for these things. And um, uh, this is why I will often say, <clears throat> like I did last Sunday, um, okay, here's the end of a section. Right? Luke's words, the church grew and multiplied. Okay, that's his way of saying, okay, my section is done. Let's go on to the next one. And we'll see that even today with verse 21. Uh, so look for these things. Um, they're given to us for, um, to guide us in our understanding. Now the other thing that I, uh, I believe I started on last time was uh, <coughs> the history. For some letters, we don't have much historical context. Um, we don't know a whole lot about uh, the context of, say, Third John or Second John. Um, we do have a lot of context for some other letters, like First Thessalonians or something to that effect, or even Romans to some degree. A lot of the historical context is found within the letter itself, uh, but then especially when we see them connecting with events in Acts, then we can uh, learn a lot more. And so um, pay attention to the historical context in the letter itself, and then, if we can, from something else, like, again, especially in the book of Acts. Sometimes we'll get some historical context outside of the scriptures, uh, either uh, from secular history or even church history, uh, traditions and histories that they've recorded for us, and um, some of them are very accurate and sound, and we can use them. Some of them are a bit more speculative, so we have to treat them with, with uh, some hesitation. Um, but just like we saw with narrative, this is God's story to us, and the letter is very much a part of that. Um, and so the better we know that, the better we're going to understand uh, the letter. All right, now thirdly, and uh, this has a little bit more to do with uh, how we approach it, you can say. Uh, and that is, read the whole letter. Hey, when you get a letter for somebody, do you read like two sentences in the middle of it and put it down? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> okay. but even a business letter or formal letter from the IRS or something, you're usually going to read the whole thing from start to finish. And um, our tendency, though, when we read the letters in the scriptures or any passage of scripture is not to read the whole thing. We just read a portion of it. Um, but it seems to be somewhat commonsensical here that we should read the whole thing. <laughs> or we're going to miss the point, or we're not going to understand it as thoroughly. Um, so this isn't so much unique to epistle, but just I think it's easiest for us to see because when we receive letters or cards from people, we, uh, we read the whole thing. Uh, now, once we've done that, then maybe we'll go back and read a portion of a letter that we've received, or even here in, in the New Testament, 
and and so on. But read the whole thing, which then leads uh, to my next point here, and that is you've got to read things in context. Uh, it is I mean, you see it everywhere. Hey, I'm sure you students at the college, you're going to see posters or or emails or something like that, and you see a verse on a poster. You know, well, this conference is going to be centered around this verse, this topic, uh, or people have it on their T-shirts or something to that effect. We hear people say, what's your favorite verse? You know, okay, uh, that's not altogether bad, but what tends to happen is we take it out of context. and It doesn't really fit the point in the broader context. Uh, this is true of any scripture, um, but since uh, in many ways you can consider every book in the New Testament as a letter, uh, even the Gospels. Acts was a letter, Luke was a letter to Theophilus, uh, and so we can really consider all 27 books as letters, and our tendency, of course, with so much of the American church being a New Testament church, uh, verses are taken out of context all the time and we can't do that we need to read the whole thing we need to read the verse or passage in context and see well how does it fit with the flow of thought okay their care in writing how does it fit with the historical context and this you're going to find it anywhere not just your uh, new testament only baptist churches as i mentioned last week the one sermon we heard when we were on vacation, uh, did Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, said absolutely nothing about the historical context. Said absolutely nothing about verses 5 and following. Um, Because I know the book, he didn't say anything wrong in terms of what verses 1 to 4 to say, but on the other hand, it wasn't right because he didn't set it in the context. And, um, and so we got a, a truncated understanding of those verses. And this is so common, um, so common. And so this is why uh, people such as myself preach through books so that we can get the context and so forth. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> just a few things here conceptually about epistles, comments or questions to this point. Yes, Susan. I would say probably two reasons in particular, at least two that come to my mind here immediately, is one, uh, a lot of professing Christians are moralists, and they're not really Christians. So I think that's part of it. The other part is, it takes work to really understand what I've just said. And most people aren't going to put the work into that. It's much easier to take a verse out and say, 
well, this is what it means to me, rather than, what did it mean to John when he wrote that? What did it mean to Paul when he wrote that? And what did it mean to the people who received it? It takes a lot more work and effort. And um, in my experience, a lot of people just don't want to put that time and effort into it. Now, there is a place for taking a verse and saying, hey, you know, this, this applies in this situation, but only when we set it within its broader context do we fully understand what's going on. I mean, at least more so. <laughs> I don't know if we fully understand the scriptures, but <laughs> you understand my point. <laughs> yes, Dale. Yeah, and there in Philippians 4, he says, I have had much, I've had little. I am content in all things, and I can do all things, you know. So, yeah, it's in the context of blessing and not as much blessing. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, instead, it's like, yeah, no, it's the beginning of the ball game. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're Christian athletes, right? You know, and. Or before a concert, or you know whatever it is, and or before a test even. <laughs> um, yes, that's one <laughs> obvious example. Um, but you know, even so, the verse does apply in all kinds of settings. The point is, what is what is Paul saying initially? Understand that point. And then we can expand our application. You know, I've been doing this in First Timothy a lot here recently, where Paul's words are specifically targeted to Timothy. And so I'll say, okay, now here's the point. This is what Paul's saying to Timothy, but it has application for all leaders in the church. It also has application for all believers. So we start with the initial point, and then we expand out with broader application. So there's a place for applying that first. What is it? Philippians four eight or something? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. And once we understand that, then we can expand our application and apply it more carefully and completely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. what you talked about a few minutes ago with your family. That's a, a perfect application 
of the broader concept. Paul has been through all kinds of hardships, primarily because he's a Christian. Okay? And so maybe these verses are more applicable to, you know, say, you know, some of the Christians in California who can't worship and are being persecuted for that. Um, or believers in China or something, you know, to that effect. That's maybe more immediate, direct application. But, okay, what you're going through, that suffering of trying to care for your parents, uh, certainly that, that has application. Um, you know, the... <clears throat> The, you know, the sporting event or something like that where you're going to war against some other team or whatever. Okay, I think we can apply it there too. But we're getting further and further away from the original point, which is primarily suffering because Paul was witnessing for Christ. And so to take a step back, how does that verse fit into the whole of the letter? And what is the context? Paul was in Rome, in prison, when he wrote that letter. and sent it to the the believers in Philippi. That is our broader context. The whole point of of the letter is basically encouraging them in the gospel, encouraging them in in godliness. Okay, there was some... Spats going on in the church, so Paul wants everyone to be humble, chapter 2. And Yodia and Sintuke there in chapter 4, you know, let's get along. So there's, you know, all that fits together um, to give us a fuller understanding of this particular verse and then to apply it more carefully and not incorrectly. Other thoughts? Questions? Yes, Alice.
take the second one yeah it definitely when satan quotes from i forget which psalm it is um, he definitely takes that out of context and jesus in his response not only quotes from deuteronomy but he quotes it that and says basically you've missed the point of the psalm we're not to test god (laughs) which is the point of the psalm we're trusting in god Um, so you could say that jesus basically told satan quit taking it out of context now, as for the Pharisees, um, yeah, I mean, you, you've, you definitely see that. Um, um, was it, when did I do this? You're uh, um, <laughs> drawing a blank, but uh, recently here I, um, I read the passage about the, um, the fifth commandment, I guess it was last Sunday night, wasn't it? I read the fifth uh, reference to the fifth commandment and how the Pharisees would say, well, if you give your money to the church and call it Corbin, you don't have to care for your parents. That was last Sunday night, I guess they did. Um, and so, yes, they, they, it's not quite the same as taking it out of context, but um, then you have the whole issue with, um, Especially when they were in exile in Babylon, they started writing a lot of a lot of things, a lot of their midrash, and and some of it was was in place, some of it was copied and codified later after Christ. But it's one situation after another where they take a verse and basically explain it away. In fact, in some of those things, they justify pedophilia. I mean, things like that. It's not just this issue of Corbin, but Jesus uses that example, um, and they do that in all kinds of places. So um, there are some things the Pharisees and the scribes say that are are good and right, but there are a lot of things where they are taking it out of context, um, or at least misapplying it. I would say they probably understood the context better than most people today. Uh, Again, because of memorizing things and so forth, but choose not to believe it and live by it. Other, yeah, Eric. Right. Rather than, right, this is the person that's 
emphasizing some of the benefits of the printing press. I was highlighting some of the not so benefits, uh, but yeah, I don't think those are contradictory. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we can open our Bibles and we can read the whole thing. You don't have to rely on one Bible at the church, and maybe your memory is faulty or you didn't memorize it so well or something like that. Um, definitely. I, I don't want to say the printing press is bad, but there are some aspects of it that that I think have contributed to the problem. Um, fair point. Yep. Other, yeah, Joe. Something I've seen true even even when I'm uh, preaching a sermon uh, our church is a little bit different but there are many churches where you can't make an Old Testament reference and assume people know what you're talking about let's turn a moment to first Thessalonians and um First Thessalonians. Now, <clears throat> while you're there, let's now turn back to Acts chapter 17. And we'll see how far we get here today. We're coming up on the end already of our time. Okay, Acts 17. I thought maybe as... Um, with narrative, we looked at Genesis 22 and tried to apply some of the concepts. Let's try to apply some of the concepts here in this way, and I thought it would be helpful for us to do one that we've talked about here rather recently in Acts, and that is the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I think we see some of these principles a little more readily um, because of what we see about Thessalonica and Acts, and in comparison to 2 Thessalonians, I think we see it more clearly in 1 Thessalonians, but the same applies for any one of these. So anyway, let's read again here then, Acts 17, beginning of verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, remember they just left Philippi, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. All right, now, because of this, Paul wasn't in Thessalonica very long. Three weeks for sure, probably not any more than eight weeks, is what uh, most conservative scholars would, would, would argue. So now, verse 5, this is why. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, 
These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, so that when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the first part of verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. All right, so here's their context. Paul's there for a few weeks, maybe a couple months, and uh, some people come to faith in the synagogue. Of course, some don't. And as we see in verse 5, it was envy, and they stirred up a mob and got the riffraff to gather together here and destroy or try to destroy Paul and so on. Uh, they grabbed Jason. Note the rulers of the city. Uh, you might remember that's the word politarch, and they are the ones that um, oversaw the uh, basically the worship of Caesar, the emperor worship. And um, so that's why the mention of Caesar, a reference to, oh, these guys came from Rome, and remember Caesar kicked them out of Rome, and, and so on. So this is the whole thing. So <clears throat> Paul had to leave rather abruptly. So these are new believers, and Paul can't return. So, if we come to 1 Thessalonians, now that we have some of this historical background, and again, not all letters in the New Testament have that nice historical background as we just saw. But if you recall, uh, as I mentioned, when Paul was in Corinth, whatever it was, a few months later or something like that, um, Silas and Timothy come to Paul. Paul then writes 1 Thessalonians. So we're probably three months, maybe no more than six months after Paul was in in Thessalonica. He writes this letter. Now you'll notice um, some connections here. All right, verse 1. Paul Silvanus, remember that's the Latin name for Silas, and Timothy, the three who came to Thessalonica, now here write this letter. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, some of your translations then will also say from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some manuscripts have that, some don't. All right, verse. So, so notice here the introduction, very typical for a letter in that day. Who's writing, to whom it was written, and then some kind of uh, salutation here. Paul's typical grace to you and peace. All right, so now verse 2. We give thanks to God always for, for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Right? We just read about Jason. With joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So you've got Berea and Philippi for sure in Macedonia. Achaia would be Greece. So Athens and now Corinth where Paul's writing. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. 
Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, now, remember these are new believers. Paul doesn't come in right from the beginning here and give them any commands. He doesn't rebuke them for anything. It's very encouraging, isn't it? Hey, we're giving thanks. We've heard all these wonderful things about your faith, even though I can't be there with you. Word is spreading really throughout the known world about your faith and how you've trusted in Christ. So, very encouraging to new believers. Then, note verse 10. um, That's kind of a theme for what's going to come at the end. And that is the return of Christ, what happens when believers die before Christ comes back. That's one of the issues that he's going to address here. And so verse 10, you might say, prepares us for that. All right. So let's see how far we get here. Chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, right? they knew about it because Paul had just left Philippi, and they came to Thessalonica. As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So, all right, Paul had conflict in Philippi, conflict in Thessalonica. But they spoke the truth anyway. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, that we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. All right, let's pause there then. Again, you, do you hear the, the, the pastor speaking to these new believers, especially the pastor who, who had to leave? And he's making it clear to them, I can't come back right now, but that doesn't diminish my care for you. Note the language of father and mother here in these verses that he uses um, and calling them children and such. He reminds them of the visit, reminds them of the things he did, reminds them how he didn't ask for money, uh, but he probably was making tents and so forth. And so, you know, all this then connects us back to Acts 17. And here we have, obviously, a very personal account on Paul's part. All right. Well, unfortunately, we can't read the whole letter at once here because we're out of time. Um, 
but uh, we'll we'll finish that next time. But but I encourage you to do this in your own uh, reading of the scripture. Read the whole letter. Now you can probably read through First Thessalonians in I don't know fifteen minutes or something like that. Um, Book of Romans is going to take you a bit longer, but it doesn't take that long to read through most of these things in one sitting. Um, all right, final comments or questions here? Yes, Susan. Right. Right. Sure. And I think that's true. And I think, though, it's it's different, say, from 1 Corinthians, where he doesn't focus so much on his apostleship here, like he does in 1 Corinthians. But he is addressing those who say, well, Paul doesn't really care. Look, he left and he didn't come back. So, um, slightly different focus, but overall, same, same basic idea. Um, okay, well, let's um, pray as we conclude. <clears throat> Father, we thank you again for your word, and once again we ask for strength to be good and faithful students of your word, that we might understand the words you gave to us to to know and to believe and to live by. Lord, we uh, pray especially in our our reading and and studying of epistles, that you would give us um, uh, diligence and care that we might uh, know the at least a fuller knowledge and, and understanding of what you have given to us here. Um, we thank you again that you have given us your spirit to assist us and direct us in this uh, task. And uh, we thank you for the amazing privilege that we have uh, to, to read these letters and, um, and, and to know more of you and the early church and, and so on. Lord, we ask again that you would strengthen us for worship. Here as we gather together, we pray that you would be honored and uh, that you would grow us in grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.